Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakravorty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And you are joining us today for a very special episode. It is our 300th episode. Yay, 300. Yeah, we started way back. Well, not we personally, but um, the podcast started way back in 2008. And there have been many, many episodes since then. So for this very special anniversary, we thought it would only be fitting. We thought it would be a great time to fulfill a listener request regarding this very number. Over the past couple of years, several people have contacted us regarding the 2006 movie 300, directed by Zack Snyder. And it's about a battle between the Greeks and the Persians. A king named Leonidas, or Leonidas, as the movie, as they pronounce it in the movie, leads 300 Spartans, all with perfect abdominal muscles for some reason, into battle against the army of Xerxes I, which outnumbers theirs exponentially. Yeah, and the screenplay was, of course, based on a graphic novel by Frank Miller, but listeners wanted to know if there was some historical truth behind this story. And in fact, there was some truth. It's the Battle of Thermopylae, and it took place in 480 BC, and it was instigated at least in part by another battle that we've already covered, the Battle of Marathon. And this really is perfect podcast symmetry because probably none of you know this, but Dublina's test episode was the Battle of Marathon, and here we are at episode number 300. Yes, and this is this could really be a part two to that episode. The Battle of Marathon took place in 490 BC between the Athenian and the Persians, and it was another one in which the Greeks were greatly outnumbered, but they still managed to win. And so that meant major humiliation for the then Persian king, Darius I. So in this episode, we're going to fast forward 10 years, and Darius's son, Xerxes I, is king. And he'd taken over the Persian Empire when Darius died in 486 BC. Yeah, and at first, Xerxes wasn't that interested in avenging his father's defeat at the Battle of Marathon. It was kind of the last thing on his to-do list. But a couple of things might have changed his mind. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, this is kind of a, a standard reason. His cousin and brother-in-law, Mardonius, who was supported by this strong party of exiled Greeks, might have talked him into it. The other more colorful reason, according to an article in Military History by David Fry, was that there was this mystical cause behind it. A phantom supposedly appeared in Xerxes' dreams, urging him to invade Greece and avenge his father. And his magi interpreted it as a portent for world conquest. So Xerxes, being an ambitious guy, decided to go for it. Yeah. And so he spent the next three to four years building the ultimate army. He enlisted soldiers and gathered supplies from pretty much every part of his empire. Which is substantial, as we mentioned in the Battle of Marathon episode. Quite. And according to Herodotus, the Greek historian who gives us the earliest account of a lot of these episodes that we we cover, but of this story as well, he says that an effort like this had never been undertaken before, and he estimated that Xerxes' army included about 2.6 million people, including the navy. And once you added in the servants, crews, and all the rest of the people involved, that number might have been doubled. Yeah, but Herodotus is, of course, prone to sort of overestimating things. And modern historians think that the number is probably more around 200,000 to 360,000, but still a really enormous number and a really frightening army. 
So with such an army, Xerxes probably didn't expect much resistance at all from the Greeks. So like Darius, he sent messengers to the Greek city-states demanding surrender in the typical fashion with the typical tokens of submission at the time, which were earth and water. So what this meant is that you were conceding that the land and the sea belonged to the Persian king. Many Greek towns did surrender in this case. Yeah, but Xerxes didn't even bother sending messengers this time to Athens and Sparta because of the trouble they faced last time. If you remember in the Marathon podcast, the messengers were just killed outright. So he figured between him and Athens and Sparta, they were all on the same page. They knew it was going to be a fight. Yeah, and you might actually remember this part from the movie. That's one sort of difference in the story. In the movie, he does send the messenger to Sparta, and that's kind of the famous scene where Leonidas kicks the messenger into the well. Some good movie drama. Definitely. Yeah, so his intentions known at this point, Xerxes has a bridge built of boats built across the Hellespont, which is the narrow strait of water that separates Europe and Asia. A storm, however, destroyed that bridge before they could cross it. Xerxes is so mad about this, he ordered that the waters be whipped. They were given 300 lashes, to be exact, (laughs) and then he beheaded the engineers, so they didn't come out so well in this. But then he gets some new engineers and builds two new bridges of ships tied side by side, and his army marches across them to advance into Greece. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, of course, the Greeks aren't just sitting around waiting for it to happen. They knew, or at least the cities who didn't submit, knew that they had a better chance defending themselves against the Persians if they banded together and coordinated a defense. So they decided they'd meet the enemy at Thermopylae, which was a mountain pass that was the best and the easiest route to get into central Greece. So they knew that Xerxes and his army would have to go through that pass if they were going to attack Athens or Sparta. Fortunately for the Greeks, it was a really good defensive spot because the pass was very narrow. It was only 50 feet wide and it had water and mountains on each side. So it made it easier for a very small force or a smaller force like the Greeks to hold back this large Persian army. And the Greeks figured that this was their best chance to at least delay the Persians, if nothing else. Right. But the total number of Greeks who went out to Thermopylae may vary depending on what source you look at. It was probably somewhere around 7,000, though, maybe as few as 4,900. But one thing we do find that's consistent is that there were 300 Spartans involved. And the 300 were handpicked by King Leonidas. He chose these men basically to die. They were all middle-aged men with children that they could leave behind as heirs. And um, as far as his own destiny was concerned, an oracle had told him Sparta must either lose a king or see the city destroyed. So we're guessing in this case he figured he wasn't coming back as well. I found that interesting, too, that the requirement of children is so at ends with how we would normally think of picking a troop of men to die. You'd, you'd pick younger, unattached men, but they had certain different values in Sparta, clearly. Yeah, well, they were warriors, and they wanted to have people there to take their place once they were gone. Yeah, so Leonidas was not just in charge, though, of these 300 elite fighters. He was also in overall command of the entire Greek army, and he led them to Thermopylae, and fortunately, they got there first. It was still unoccupied, and they just sort of started getting ready. There were hot springs there, which gave the pass its name, and there was a ruined wall and a gate, and they they. Rushed to rebuild these to 
increasingly fortify their defense. Right. So they're getting ready. And before the Persian army actually makes it onto the scene, they sent ahead a scout to check out what the Greeks are up to. And they were shocked at what they found and a little bit amused as well. They found Spartans naked and exercising or lounging about combing their hair. Presumably doing ab exercises, right? Exactly. (laughs) But I mean, Xerxes may have laughed here, but what he didn't know is that Spartan warriors always did this kind of stuff before they went into battle, fixing their hair and so forth. And the Greeks, they also got a little intel on the Persians as well. They sent out a scout, but their, their, I guess, information that they found wasn't quite as a little more funny. disturbing. It was a little scarier. They, they found out about the size of the Persian army in particular. And just to kind of give you an example of the reaction before the battle, a Spartan named Dionysus was told that when Persian archers let loose a volley, their arrows would hide the sun just because of the sheer volume of them. And Dionysus, though, he wasn't that impressed by it. He said, quote, for if the Persians hide the sun, we shall fight in the shade. Yeah. So they're they're all tough on both sides, clearly. But Xerxes expected the Greeks to be a little more frightened. He, after all, did have this huge army that he had been assembling for years and years. And so when the Persians finally arrived, they camped a short distance from the pass and basically had a standoff for four days. And it's interesting, this happens a lot in these ancient battle podcasts. Both sides finally get there and then they just wait for days and days. And I cannot comprehend the agony that that would be just sitting around waiting for something to happen. But Xerxes expects the Greeks to turn tail and run to just get frightened by the overall size of the Persian army. Yeah, they didn't, though. And this makes Xerxes really angry. I mean, this is the guy who lashed the water for ruining his bridge. So he's ready to take it out on them. So on the fifth day, which may have been around August 17th, 480 BC, the Persians sent in their first wave of troops and they suffered really terrible losses. So Xerxes is even more mad at this point. So he sends in his toughest guys, his most esteemed unit, which was the immortals. Yeah, and they're called the Immortals not because they were invincible, but because they seem that way. It always seemed to be a 10,000 men strong group. When whenever one was killed or wounded or sick, they would just replace him before anybody could tell the difference. Yeah, so if you've seen the movie 300, they're the ones who are wearing all black and they have these metallic masks on and they're described in the movie as having their teeth filed to points and no souls. <laughs> That's my favorite part. I watched the clip from the movie before. Before, before going into recording, and it was a little bit amusing and a little bit like the Dementors almost. They were spooky, though. They were definitely spooky. But the Greeks didn't have much trouble with them either. And it all came down to the battlefield being such a tight space, which gave the Greeks a real tactical advantage here. First of all, it prevented the Persians from fighting the way that they were trained to fight. They couldn't use their bow and arrows, and they only had wicker shields, daggers, short spears, and pretty much no armor, very little armor. So they just weren't equipped for hand-to-hand combat, which is what it came to. Yeah, and the Greeks, on the other hand, had their heavy armor and their long spears that could outreach the shorter Persian swords, and they could create these walls with these shields, locking them all together. And military history describes this standard tactic of Greek fighting as shock warfare. And the experienced Spartan warriors could just come out from behind the walls and 
fight fiercely for a few minutes and then pretend to retreat in order to further draw the Persians in, making it worse and worse for them. Yeah, and if you want to learn a little bit more about these Greek fighting tactics, that Battle of Marathon episode that we mentioned has a lot of those details in there. So check that out if you want to find out a little more along those lines. But this fighting style worked for the Greeks for the first two days, and they successfully held the Persians off. And there's there's really no telling how long it could have worked if they'd had the chance to keep doing what they were doing. But we'll never really know because on the third day, a local man named Aphialtes betrayed the Greeks and gave away this little secret that they had. Yeah, and that's that the Greeks a few days earlier when they had arrived had discovered that there was this small path through the mountains that led around the pass. So basically behind the Greeks. And Leonidas, of course, knew about this pass, and he had left a small contingent there to guard it. But the contingent was really just to give warning in case the Persians did discover it. There were no natural defenses there, and they knew that if the Persians found it, it was going to be a big blow to their fighting style. When they found out about the secret path, Xerxes immediately sent the immortals up the path. Aphialtes, probably motivated by greed, probably getting paid somehow, he led them there. And they surprised the Greeks who were guarding the path, but lookouts managed to race down and warn Leonidas. So he had to make a decision at that point. So he had a little powwow, and he made a decision that some people still kind of question. He decided to send most of the city-state's contingents home so that they could live to fight another day. Defend the cities. Right. But he decided that he and his 300 Spartans would stay behind and pretty much face certain death. The thespians also stayed along with them. They volunteered to. They basically just considered it an honor to die fighting beside Spartans. Thebans were also kept there, but they were kept as hostages. They were kept that way because they were suspected of having Persian sympathies. And basically that turned out to be true because they ended up surrendering to the Persians before the fighting really began. Yeah, but all the Greeks who stayed to fight in that last battle died, including Leonidas, his his oracle's prediction was was true, and Xerxes won that battle. But the Greeks did eventually defeat the Persians, and later they put up memorials commemorating this big sacrifice at Thermopylae, and one is dedicated to the 300 Spartans specifically, and it reads, quote, Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here obeying their commands we lie. Yeah, that pretty much sums up pretty dramatic the story and overall it seems like the movie stays pretty true to the basics of the battle although some of the characterizations may be a little bit off the persians for example they didn't bring along elephants and rhinos to charge along with them xerxes according to a little comparison done in entertainment weekly which i found kind (laughs) of interesting they said that xerxes probably had a long zz top beard instead of being totally bald and and kind of tattooed (laughs) and with earrings threatening right and a failty's probably wasn't a hunchback, and we're not even really sure if he was truly a Spartan, yeah. as he's portrayed in the movie. We just know the only thing, that greed was clearly a motivation. Mm-hmm. So, and that he was Greek. Yeah, that he was Greek. So there were some casting changes to make things a little more dramatic and add a couple minor storylines, but the essence of the story seems pretty close. There's courage against horrible odds, and and ultimately a, a victory. Yeah, and I love those stories, those Courage against underdog stories, underdog stories. Yeah. And we've done a lot of great stories in this podcast throughout these 300 episodes. And I would love to know, since I haven't been on the podcast that long, I really want to know, Sarah, what are your favorite episodes? Well, I'm not going to just tell you some of my favorite episodes, but I went and asked 
a few people involved in the podcast, old podcast hosts, our producer, our editor, you know, people who have been there from the beginning, what their favorite episodes were. Yeah. Can we just mention also all the people who have been involved since the beginning? Yeah. It started with um, Candace and Josh. I didn't get to ask Josh. He's not at work this week. But I did talk to Candace, and she said that her favorite episodes were hands down, quote, Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution, which if any of y'all know Candace, she's a big French history buff. So that's right no surprise. Katie's favorite episodes are along a kind of different line. She really loved the expeditions and adventure tales like Franklin's Lost Expedition, Ghastly Blank, and Race to the South Pole. She also loved the shipwreck that saved Jamestown and real-life Moby Dick sinks a ship. Yeah, and I didn't get to talk to Jane either because she just got married. I figured she didn't want to gab about some old podcast episodes. <laughs> but I did ask Lizzie, who who has edited the podcast for a long time. She had a lot of old favorites. Why did Lady Godiva take a naked horse ride? That's probably one of everybody's favorites. How did Rasputin really die, which was also our producer Jerry's favorite. How Lord Byron worked, how Charlie Chaplin worked, the craft's escape to freedom, which is one of my favorites from from recently, and Don't Cross the Dragon Lady, which, Deplina, that was was one you picked out. Yeah, that was a fun one. And um, I guess my own favorites, I have so many. I had a huge list, and I really had to to narrow it down a little bit, but I really like the re- weird royalty episodes, like the Elizabeth and Mary series and Ludwig II. I think everybody probably knows that's one of my favorites. I also like the adventure literary combo episodes, like the Jamestown one that, that Katie had, had mentioned, the Astor Place riots and the real-life Robinson Crusoe. And strangely enough, some of the sports ones I've, I've really enjoyed, like the recent Jimmy Winkfield one and Satchel Page and Battle Horses holds a very special place in my heart. <laughs> I just remember having so much fun, not just researching that episode, but picking out the entries that were going to be on it. And I still have the little list where I've, I've like jotted down different battle horses trying to, trying to pick them out. But what are some of your favorites? I love the ones where we research the real person behind the literary characters. Yeah. So Sherlock Holmes, one of the first ones I did. That was a great still one. Still one of my favorites. And and the real life Robinson Crusoe. That was a fun one to do. I also really love just the mysteries, the mysterious deaths and mysterious disappearances. I know those are kind of morbid, but they're really fascinating to research and find out what people's theories are. So Christopher Marlowe, that was a fun that one. Was a good one yeah. Super E, that was a really fun one to do too. So I have so many favorites like you and I've only been on it a few months. So yeah. So I mean, we've had a great time doing the small percentage of those 300 episodes that we've worked on. And um, we're just we're glad to ring in such a big number with everybody. Thank you so much for listening and send us more suggestions, suggestions for 301. Actually, we'll probably have recorded that one by the time we yeah. get your emails, <laughs> but um, definitely keep sending things in. Battle of Marathon was a listener suggestion. The Real 300, clearly a listener suggestion. Some of y'all give us our best ideas. Absolutely. Keep sending them and tell us what kind of podcasts you like to listen to. We've talked about that a little bit here, but we'd love to know what you like to find out about. You can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. Yeah, and instead of throwing to an article like we usually do, since this is our 300th anniversary celebration, we're going to throw to the podcast. So go check out our archive. We have 
300 episodes now, starting June 9th, 2008, back when it was Fact or Fiction, the little two or three minute podcast. They're kind of fun to listen to now. Yeah, and it won't take you long to get through. No, you'll, you'll cover probably about 20 podcasts within a very short amount of time. So go check us out. We are on iTunes. We have an RSS feed on our podcast page, and you can find a lot of that at HowStuffWorks at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 